If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It turns out that when the bride's family goes out and hunts down and murders every single person that the groom loves or trusts in the entire world, that does not promote good relationship between husband and wife. That was Nancy Goldstone on the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre 1572. To have ten witches hanged, another one die in jail, another one put in the pillory, is far greater than any other English witch trial. So clearly what we're looking at here, for whatever reason, is a witch hunt. And that was Robert Poole on the trial of the Pendle Witches. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of July 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with author and historian Nancy Goldstone. Nancy has written a new book on the relationship between French Queen Catherine de' Medici and her daughter Marguerite de Valois a relationship that was clouded with rivalry and betrayal. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Nancy to find out more. You opened the book with with quite an extraordinary event that took place in in 1572. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that um, and the impact that it had on the relationship between Catherine and Marguerite? Well, the incident is the marriage, well, and the marriage of Marguerite, who was the youngest daughter of Catherine de Medici and um, Henri II, who was king of France. He was dead by that time. Uh, Marguerite was 19, and she was um, forced, really, to marry her 18-year-old cousin, Henri, king of um, Navarre. And, the, and she was very reluctant to do this because... She was a devout Catholic, and he was the leader of the Protestant faction in France, which was known as the Huguenots. And to Marguerite, um, as to every devout Catholic at that time, the Huguenots were heretics. 
And she didn't, she was very concerned that um, she would be forced to convert and then her soul would be confined to the everlasting flames of hell. And that was a situation that she wanted to avoid. But her mother and her elder brother, Charles IX, who was the king of France, um, they forced her to marry him. And this big, splashy, royal, opulent wedding at the, um, right outside the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. And then, and this wedding was billed all across Europe by, Kath, by both Catherine and um, Charles IX as a way to bring peace to the kingdom because the Huguenots and the Catholics had been fighting each other for a decade in a very bloody civil conflict known as the Wars of Religion. And they, would, they had even come to the point of raising armies against each other and fighting it out on, in cities. So this wedding, which was going to occur at the very top of French society, a royal princess married to her cousin who was next in line to the throne. He was the first prince of the blood. So he was in line to inherit the throne if Catherine's sons died without, um, without issue. This was going to bring usher in a new era of peace and tranquility to the kingdom. That's what they said. And, of course, this, this beautiful vision just went right out the window three days after the marriage when every Huguenot guest at the wedding was hunted down and murdered in the streets of Paris in an infamous episode that is today called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where over the course of a week, somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 people died, um, mostly Huguenots, all over France. So Marguerite was completely unaware of that this was going to happen, and it did very much color her relationship with her mother because um, she didn't actually appreciate having her wedding be become so infamous in um, French history. But, but also just from a strict, I think, moral sense, even though she had, she had fought bitterly against um, marrying Henry after she was married to him and she saw this happen to to him, she actually went, out of her way to protect him and, and rejected any offer by her mother to annul the marriage and which would have allowed her to marry someone that um, someone else. So I think um, that she really, this was the moment in her life of Marguerite's life that, that sort of where she actually became uh, a queen and a moral center for, for France in that way. Yeah. I mean, what was the relationship like between the two prior to this, you know, as a, as a child, say, how did Marguerite view her mother? How, you know, how, what was her, her childhood like? Catherine was very concerned with her eldest son, Charles IX, and her second son, Henri, who, um, Henri, who would become Henri III. She was very involved in their lives. But with Marguerite, Marguerite was kind of just off to the side. She, until she was 13, she wasn't at court. She had her own a governess. She was stayed in a different castle most of the time. She came to court when she was about 13 or 14. And then her, her, she had a very rocky time with her mother because, um, she fell in love with the Duke of Guise and the dashing Duke of Guise. He was a very handsome guy. And, um, she, she, and he wanted to marry her and, and her mother did not want that. So right away, they had this kind of strife. And also her brother, Henri III, or her brother Henri, who was Charles IX's younger brother, 
he asked her to spy for him. And then, but then when he found out that she had, she had, um, fallen in love with the Duke of Guise, he actually kind of promoted that a little. He ruined her relationship with her mother. So she had a very rocky relationship. She was trying, um, I think, to be a good princess. But, you know, when she did not want to marry Henri IV or Henri of King of Navarre, she ran into real trouble with her mother there. I mean, are there any similarities in, in their characteristics, you know, Catherine and, and Marguerite? Were they completely sort of different people? Oh, they were completely different people. Catherine, <laughs> Catherine had had a very difficult life growing up. And she was, she came from Florence. She had been orphaned at birth. She, when she was about eight years old, her family fell from power in Florence and she had been put into a convent uh, to for kind of for safekeeping. But the people in the opposition in Florence still hated the Medicis and she wanted, they wanted to, they actually publicly debated when she was between the ages of eight and 10, whether she should they should take her out of this nunnery and give her to a brothel or give her to the army to be raped or better yet, just strip her naked and chain her outside the walls of Florence. And she knew about all this and she had to rely very heavily on the um, protection of the nuns. So she learned at a very, very early age to be ingratiating to be um, to ne- to never to be very obedient to never be, be demanding to try and hide herself. That's what Catherine was like. And um, but Marguerite, on the other hand, was always right out there, very courageous, always herself, never a victim. And Marguerite's problem was that she lost her father when she was about three years old. Her mother showed her no love. Her mother really only showed love to the second son Henri. And um, so Marguerite was kind of this passionate, free spirit who was always looking for love. And Catherine was more like kind of the Uriah Heap of the, of the um, 16th century, where she pretended to be, to, to be very ingratiating. And then when she got a little power, she just went kind of crazy. So what about their approach to queenship then, um, you know, and politics? Did that differ at all as well? I mean, do you think Marguerite deliberately um, went a different way to, to her mother? No, I, I don't think she deliberately. I think she would have loved it, you know, to be everybody to be happy. But the way things were set up, um, her once they had this wedding and what, I, she was appalled. I mean, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre is kind of like Tiananmen Square. I mean, they just killed people in the streets. They killed children. They killed pregnant women. They, it was, it was just a terrible thing. And, and she was appalled by, I mean, that was a, a scar on a wound for her. And, um, I think that everyone affected was affected by it in one way or another. Certainly her elder brother Charles was, and I think even Henri was. So, um, that right away put her into the camp of people who were, um, more uh, politic about they were called the politiques. They were they were not so ra- radical about what they were trying to do. They were trying to bring the country more together, the kingdom more together. Whereas her mother had had and her uh, elder brother Henri, they were um, much more getting, trying to get rid of the Huguenots. weren't as concerned for for people and Marguerite really I think was a gel between the Huguenots and the politique movement she was a very powerful force for a moderate approach I would say to French politics. 
evidently, I suppose, it, it would have affected her relationship with her new husband as well. I mean, did did he suspect her of, of actually knowing something about this massacre, you know, beforehand? Yes, it turns out that when the bride's family goes out and hunts down and murders every single person that the groom loves or tr- trusts in the entire world, that does not promote good relationship between husband and wife. Uh, Henry just thought that he couldn't, have, he couldn't have known and wouldn't have believed, frankly, that Marguerite wasn't in on it because it seemed like the rest of her family was in on it. And in his, from his point of view, because she spent the night before the massacre in his rooms with him, she spent that whole time there and never warned him. So he wanted, I mean, he hated her. He wanted to have nothing to do with her. And he didn't want to have anything to do with her family. So these two, and these two never talked. There's, I'm sure even if she tried to tell him, he wouldn't have believed her. So th- they never had a good, re- a good relationship at all. And they weren't particularly attracted to each other. And on top of that, um, Marguerite couldn't have children, which is a huge problem because Henry needed heirs. But in spite of all of that, I, I, I really admire her because, you know, she didn't love him and he was horrible to her. And yet she threw this net of protection around him. It was she who saved him so many times from, um, from her family, from, um, from being tried or being executed. And she nursed him back to health. She did all kinds of things to try to help him and stood surety for him when he, he would just, when he escapes or does, she was the one who would take all the punishment and she did it. And she did that just because she felt, I think she felt it was, she was married to him and she was trying and it was the right thing to do. So I, I admire that's a lot. That was a level of, of morality and courage that I'm not sure all of us could summon up. You also described the 16th century as as being the age of the queen. Um, I mean, how actually how easy was it to be a queen during this period? I mean, how much power could you realistically wield as a as a woman? Well, Elizabeth I is on the throne in England. She's wielding pretty pretty good power, and so is um, Catherine. Could absolutely wielded power, and there there were other people. There was a woman in the Netherlands who was um, she wasn't a queen, but she was a duchess, and she was wielding power. Catherine's husband died in 1559, and she was regent for her son Charles from about 1560 all the way because he was only ten when his father died and too young to rule. And she ruled as regent all the way through his reign, even after he got old enough (laughs) and came of age and was an adult and could have done it himself, she continued to be the the major force in the government until his premature death at the age of 24. And then after that, she continued to be the major force in the government of her next son, Henri, Henri III, who took the throne, all the way almost until her death in 1589. So you're talking 1560 to almost 1589, over a quarter century. And then there's Elizabeth is on the throne. And um, she comes to the throne at almost the same time as Catherine. Elizabeth comes to the throne in 1558, and Catherine's there in 1560. And Elizabeth, of course, lives an astounding, has an astounding 45-year reign till 1603 because she lives so long. So these two women were, were really ruling a substantial part of Europe at that time. So, I mean, what do you think it is about those two women that that made them so successful? Well, Elizabeth was unquestionably helped by Catherine because, <laughs> because 
Catherine was not very good at her job. And so um, I think uh, Elizabeth got some breathing room there because France was not a threat to England. They seemed like they were a threat, but they really weren't because Catherine was, um, after the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, it, that kind of took France right out of the equation. The reason Catherine stayed in, in power so long was that um, she killed a lot of the people, a lot of, in those wars of religion, she killed a lot. There were a lot of people killed. A lot of the older generation of men and soldiers were killed. And she was basically ruling. The court was all composed of, of teenagers and 20-something kids. And it just kind of like, you know, college age. So they were not like when, when um, Marguerite married her cousin, Henry of Navarre, he was only 18. And he was not going to take on... She was she was able to hold on like that. It wasn't until and the Duke of Guise's son, the elder Duke of Guise had died and the son was there and he was only twenty one or twenty two. So they they didn't challenge her. It wasn't until they got into their thirties that they were got strong got strong enough to really challenge her. And by that time, she, that's when she started to fall from power. How did the French court sort of differ from the English court at the time? Would it have been harder to have been a woman in power in France? I think the main way that the French court um, differed from the English court was the way was it that the French court was one that revolved around sex. I've, I mean, I've been studying royalty for a long time. I've never seen anything like that court. Um, it was, <laughs> I don't know how they got any sleep, really. They, Catherine had around her a, a group of beautiful women called the Flying Squad that were nicknamed the Flying Squadron, and it was their job to seduce her political opponents and get state secrets and keep them kind of in her in her thrall. And then her son Henri came along, and he had he was homosexual, so he had a bunch of. Um, young, beautiful young men around him called the Minions. And there were, there was a lot of trading sex for secrets and all that kind of thing that you didn't see anything approaching that at the English court. So I don't think it was harder for Catherine de Medici to stay in power in France. And it was, and it, it was, a, it was, you have to, um, in, but the hardest thing with history is not to, uh, know what you know is coming in the future. So most people today, we think of, um, when we think of France, we think of the French Revolution, where they chopped off, that the French would chop off their king's heads. But the French Revolution is two centuries away at this point, in the 16th century. And in the 16th century, the French were very, very loyal to their kings. In the, in the 15th century, you had a, a French king uh, Charles VI, and he was schizophrenic. He was running around the castle uh, naked thinking he was somebody named George, and they stayed completely loyal to him. In the, um, in, and and they, they admired their kings in France. They thought they were the most Christian kings. So Catherine had that going for her. She didn't she ruled in the name of her sons, and they were and most people didn't um, try to actually attack the king and themselves. They tried to get rid of the counselors. She did have trouble right in the beginning with the Guises. They were going to get rid of her, but then the Duke of Guise was assassinated and, and, and a lot of his people were assassinated, and so she was able to stay in power. And once her sons really got in power, then I think she was, she was protected in that way. After um, Marguerite's marriage, did she have any contacts at all with her mother? I mean, did they, you know, the title of the book is, is Rival Queens. Were, were they actual rivals in, in that sense? 
they were definitely rivals because Catherine was, was um, what happened was that Catherine's youngest son, Francois, was wanted to, um, was kind of the leader of the Huguenot and politique, well, of the politique movement. And he wanted to go and invade, not invade, but help the Netherlands who were fighting the Spanish. And Marguerite wanted to support him in this. And this was not a policy that Catherine or her son, Henri III, wanted to promote. They, they did not want to um, provoke the Spanish. This is one of the reasons why the Spanish were so powerful. And, and um, Philip II, was the king of, France, of Spain, was so powerful during this period because their natural enemy used to be France. And Catherine and wouldn't have, didn't, was afraid of them and wouldn't, um, didn't want to cause any trouble. But Marguerite and um, Francois, and the, the irony is that the policies that Francois and Marguerite were promoting to go and help the, because this is the time when the Duke of Alva is brutally repressing the Protestants in the Netherlands and they wanted their uh, they they were tradu- they had been French in the fat and they had under been under French allegiance in the fifteenth um, century and they wanted to kind of go back to being under French power and so they were welcoming Francois they wanted the French to intervene this is what also what Colony and the Huguenots had wanted before they got massacred at the Saint Bartholomew's Day but these were the, exactly the policies in the next century that Louis the Fourteenth used to such advantage. He, he took those um, ideas of going into the Netherlands and, and attacking the Spanish there as, um, as what he should do, and he did it. So that's why she was so much in opposition to her mother. That's why she was a rival, because she was supporting this plan to kind of take the religious um, war out of France and fight the, use it to fight the Spanish instead. So, I mean, in their own way, they were, they were both very effective queens then. Marguerite was effective in trying to put together a political opposition against her mother and her brother's policies. But, of course, that it didn't work because uh, her husband, Hen- Henry, wouldn't, um, he didn't really participate. He kind of dropped out of it, uh, out of the whole religious wars, he just stayed in his, he escaped the king, he escaped the court and went down to his kingdom of Navarre and kind of stayed there and tried to promote Protestantism there. But it wasn't until after the assassination of the, of the Duke of Guise, when um, he actually came to the aid of Marguerite's brother and, and Marguerite split from him then. She went was part of the Catholic League. So she did actually leave her husband eventually then? She, leaves her, she left her husband and she, um, because by this time, um, the policies of Henri III and Catherine had split the country. Catholics felt that she was too moderate to the Protestants and the Protestants felt that she was too supportive of the Catholics. And what all she was really doing was just telling anybody, everybody, she didn't really have a policy. She was just trying to, uh, tell anybody what they each side what they wanted to hear, and um, you have to remember that France was then and is still today. Actually, was an overwhelmingly Catholic country. The Huguenots never got to more than maybe fifteen percent of the population, and they but they were such an aggressive minority. They would go into Catholic churches and break, destroy the 
Alex and anything they thought was idolatrous, kind of like ISIS does today. And then the Catholics would go hunt down the Huguenots at their prayer meetings. But you couldn't expect that the Huguenots could take over, that a 15% minority could take over all the patronage of the court and all the and run the country. And that was became clear to Henry the to Henry of Navarre when he said Paris is worth a mass at the end and converted to um and said actually he said he had always been a secret Catholic in his heart. And that's how the religious strife ended with um with the Catholics being in control under Henry the Fourth. I mean it sounds like it was a fascinating period to to research. Um is there anything that really stood out for you, you know, when you were when you were researching the book? I think it just <sighs> It was so, it was, it was more Game of Thrones than Game of Thrones. I mean, it was one double cross after another, after another. And um, one, especially for Marguerite, what I really, what really struck me was that the Marguerite's reputation throughout history by um, historians has been um, that of kind of a good time party girl who put her own sexual preferences ahead of her duty to her kingdom. And that could not have been less true. Of all of her family, she was, she was very intelligent. She was the most educated member of her family. She was the only member of her family who didn't use sex as a weapon. She was, did not um, approve of the violent tactics that her uh, mother and brothers used. She, um, she, and she was very brave. And the fact that she had affairs, well, in a court like that, where everybody is, I mean, that's laughable the way, um, everybody else was behaving, but also here she is, she's trapped in a loveless marriage. She was looking for love and she would, she did have a series of affairs, but they ended because it was very dangerous to be around her and they all died. All the men that she loved died violent deaths. And she felt that, and she was very open about this, that she had as much right um, for love as any man. And I got to say, I kind of loved that about her. (laughs) That was Nancy Goldstone. Nancy's latest book, The Rival Queens, is on sale now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in the UK and Little Brown in the US. And now we have a short advertisement break. From Dan Jones, celebrated author of The Plantagenets, comes his best-selling new book, The Hollow Crown. Experience the epic sweep of the Wars of the Roses and the relentless rise of the Tudor dynasty. Dan Jones invites us to meet some of history's greatest heroes and villains. From Henry V's glorious victory at Agincourt, the murderous deeds of Richard III and the ruthless rise of Henry VIII. The Sunday Telegraph called the Hollow Crown exhilarating epic blood and roses history. And the Daily Express said, if you're a fan of Game of Thrones or the Tudors, then Dan Jones's swashbucklingly entertaining slice of late medieval history will be right up your alley. The Hollow Crown by Dan Jones is out now in paperback and ebook from Faber and Faber. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. A labyrinth of tunnels built on the order of Winston Churchill beneath the White Cliffs of Dover opened to the public for the first time this week. Located 23 metres underground, Fan Bay Deep Shelter was constructed in the 1940s during the Second World War as part of Dover's connected offensive and defensive gun batteries designed to prevent German shipping moving freely in the English Channel. The shelter accommodated and catered for four officers and up to 185 men of other ranks during counter-bombardments. Forgotten after the Second World War, the tunnels are remarkably well-preserved. To read more about the tunnels, including some weird and wonderful facts, visit historyextra.com. In other news, fragments of a 1,370-year-old Quran manuscript have been discovered by researchers at the University of Birmingham. Radiocarbon analysis has dated the parchment on which the text is written to the period between AD 568 and 645. This places the Quran manuscript among the oldest in the world. Researchers believe the manuscript could have been written less than two decades after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. The manuscript will be on display at the Barber Institute of Fine Arts at the University of Birmingham from Friday the 2nd of October until Sunday the 25th of October. To find out more about the manuscript, visit historyextra.com. Meanwhile, the Japanese Mitsubishi Materials Corporation has apologised to American captives for their treatment on its sites during the Second World War. A company representative this week apologised on behalf of its predecessor, Mitsubishi Mining, for using captured American soldiers as slave labourers during the conflict. He offered remorse for, quote, the tragic events in our past, The Guardian reports. Around 12,000 American prisoners of war were put into forced labour by the Japanese government and private companies seeking to fill a wartime labour shortage, it has been reported. More than 1,100 are believed to have died. Mitsubishi Materials Corporation is the first major Japanese company to apologise for using captured American soldiers as slave labourers during the Second World War. 
According to The Telegraph, the company intends to follow the landmark apology to American prisoners of war with a similar apology to prisoners from other nations. Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekends that take place in York and Malmesbury in September and October, respectively. We have a great range of speakers that includes Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Alison Weir, Tom Holland and Helen Castor. Tickets are on sale now and you can get hold of them and find out more details at historyweekend.com. And some talks have already begun selling out, so do make sure to get your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. In August 1612, eight women and two men were hanged in Lancaster, following one of the most sensational witch trials in British history. Known as the Pendle Witches, the group had been held and tried at Lancaster Castle. Charlotte Hodgman met historian Dr Robert Poole at the castle to get the lowdown on the trial and on witchcraft in the 17th century. The, the first question is actually, you know, who were the Pendle witches? You know, Lancashire is, is so famous for. Mm. The Pendle or Lancashire witches, most of them were from Pendle, were a group of poor women, one or two children, who were accused of witchcraft in the spring of 1612 and who unwittingly became the victims of England's biggest peacetime witch trial and probably having never left the Pendle area in their lives, at the near the end of their lives they found themselves up here in Lancaster Castle on trial for their lives for witchcraft. I mean, how? I mean, just pra- practically, how would they have got here? Did they, did they walk? It's probably about 20, 30 miles from here. It's not far, is it? Uh, there is a witch's trail mm. that's been set up that goes from Lank- from uh, Barrowford in on the edge of Pendle, right through the witch's areas of, of, of Pendle, and then over the moors of the Forest of Bowland yeah. to Lancaster. Uh, you can do it in four stages of about 12 miles a day, okay. <laughs> uh, over, over, but 50 odd miles. It's a fantastic walk, quite yeah. apart from the witches' um, uh, associations. And for the 400th anniversary in 1612, there was a poem commissioned by Carol Ann Duffy yes. about the Lancashire witches. The first stanza was put on a cast iron tercet or post in Barrowford, and then there are intervals, and the last. Uh, uh, there's one up in Williamson Park in Lancaster, which we can just see from here. Yeah. And the very last one is outside Lancaster Castle, telling the story in three-line verses of the Lancashire witches from beginning okay. to end. I'll have to read that. Um, so am I right in thinking that there was one initial accusation, wasn't there, um, against one, one lady? Mm. The really strange thing about this trial is that it begins from such small beginnings. Mm. A young woman called Alison Davis is walking out somewhere near Nelson and she meets a peddler. Mm-hmm. There are different accounts, hers and his, of what happened, but essentially she either asked him for some pins or demanded pins of him. He was not going to give her pins or possibly not going to bother to open his pack to sell a poor girl a few pins. Um, he seems to have been frightened and to, to have fallen down of a stroke. We now recognise his symptoms as, as a stroke, numb all down one side. He's taken to a pub. His son is sent for and comes along two or three days later from over in Yorkshire. 
finds his father a bit recovered and he says that this girl has, 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 has uh, this dog, this black dog that she had with him, has, has, has bewitched him, she's bewitched him. Uh, this dog came to him in, 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 while he was lying paralysed and he's convinced that it's witchcraft. So they send out for her. What they're clearly trying to do is to see whether she can undo the harm that right. she'd done. And she apologises to him. She says, yes, she has bewitched him. She was sorry she was angry with him. Bad things seemed to happen around her. Yes, her grandmother was a witch. If she could undo it, she would do, but she's very, very sorry. Um, they then, perhaps because they can't get the, the, the magic undone in the ordinary mm. way, they then send for the local magistrate, Roger Noel, who begins this witchcraft investigation. Noel himself is a Puritan magistrate who has his own political and religious reasons for wanting to hunt down religious dissenters, which is papists, which is yep. the hostile term for Roman Catholics, and the whole trial snowballs from there. Um, and she, she um, accuses other family members doesn't she she involves other family members and, and friends in this which makes up this whole sort of group of, of witches who were brought to Lancaster yes to begin with she seems to be saying oh well, yes I, I know I've got magical powers because my grandmother is, is magical and she tells one or two things about her grandmother mm. and so her grandmother and she and I think her mother or, or both or interviewed fairly early on and um Alison's mother um Elizabeth Davis says absolutely nothing other than yes you know you know my my mother grandmother old Demner because you know she's got a wart on her side but so what <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but she's admitted the witch's mark and so she's interrogated again and um to begin with they say nothing um but then Roger Noel the investigating magistrate starts to draw the net a bit wider and he starts to investigate neighbours and so on and one thing that turns out is that the grandmother old Demdike, when mm. she's interviewed uh she says well yes I've I've um I did encounter the devil once in the form of a black dog, and uh, uh, he offered me a, offered me a, a pact of some kind, give me power, and I, I turned him down. But then came along and paralysed me. I couldn't invoke the name of Jesus to protect myself, and so one day I got really angry with a neighbour who'd shortchanged me for some mm. magic I did, and, and I cursed them, and something bad happened to their cow after that. And you can see how these stories develop. Yeah. Neighbours uh, start incriminating each other. Very interestingly, the family members apart from the children who later tell more elaborate stories to get themselves out of trouble perhaps mm. family members don't incriminate each other oh okay they are quite solid about that yeah but neighbors tell stories against other neighbors right what it turns out is there's been a sort of these witchcraft accusations in the community go back 20 years and it seems like old demdike and um and her rival old, old chattox the other yeah you know if you like, rivals in the, perhaps the sinister gypsy begging mm. business, um, have both been used by their neighbours for years to do magic or to do counter magic, to cure sick cattle, even to pursue family feuds by, main, by means of curses and so forth. Mm. And it's quite clear that this has been going on for some time, tolerated and even used by the community, by their wealthier neighbours, who all seem to believe in witchcraft. But only when Roger Noll starts investigating it for his own reasons do we actually get accusations, witch trials, and in the end, something like over a dozen alleged witches from the Pendle area are arrested. Yeah. 
uh, and sent to Lancaster Castle. And then, perhaps because they haven't got enough, perhaps because it looks a bit too local, they start they send the word out in, in June, July, August, any more which is around Lancashire where we can make up a full trial to show yeah. the full extent of, of the menace of, of witchcraft and, and superstition and popery. And so in the end you get this big show trial where there are 19 witches lined up to be tried at Lancaster August Assizes in 1612. And was that trial, I mean, was it a foregone conclusion? Could they ever have been acquitted? I mean, because some, actually some were acquitted, weren't, <clears> they, weren't they? Yes, they, I mean, old Demdike, the oldest grandmother, dies in prison. Um, and interestingly, once she's dead, the others start saying, oh, yes, it was her. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> How convenient. Um, even the family members, it's, you know, it gives them something to, to, to blame. Yeah. Uh, but... It's an interesting one because there was no there was no fair trials. Um, nobody had counsel to defend themselves. The 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 main means of justice in these days was to keep your accused, your witches, were kept in the cell, yeah. isolated from ev- everybody except each other. Mm-hmm. They had given written testimonies that were then depositions, which are then read out in court as their evidence while they sit silently by and listen for the first time to their words selectively quoted against them. So right. the the um, the, uh, so when, old, when, when one of them says, oh, well, the, the devil came to me in the form of a black dog and tempted me, and uh, I turned him down at first, but then when somebody cheated me, I got really angry and asked the dog to curse them, and they did. Yeah. They think they're making an excuse. Yeah, mitigating yeah. circumstances. Yeah. It wasn't me, I got angry, I've been cheated. What they've actually don't realise they've done is the Witchcraft Act has changed and it is now since 1604, since James I, it's been illegal to have anything to do with any wicked or evil spirit. They've confessed to uh, something with a capital sentence. Yes, because I've always wondered, because some of, I mean, some of the stories are, are quite fantastical, aren't they? You know, And I think, and I've always wondered why they would sort of um, incriminate themselves by admitting you know, that these dogs, this dog had come to them and um, you saying that make it does make a bit more sense then but do you think us uh, were some of these you know and there's quite a few theories aren't there about why people admitted to these things and made and had these stories mm. um you know, attention seeking you know that type of thing what's your what are your thoughts <clears throat> first of all they make limited admissions mm-hmm. with excuses they you know they were one of them for example is uh, one of the witches was uh, employed by Richard Baldwin to cure some sick cattle. When she asked for payment, he, he, he called her a witch, threw her out, threatened her, and never paid her. Yeah. So she cursed him. Um, other accusations are old Demdike and old Chattox, the two rival grandmothers, make accusations against each other. Mm. But most of the accusations actually come from children. Right. Okay. And what happens is is that the the, the mother Elizabeth um, Davis, the grandmother, uh, one or two others are sent to prison, and the children are left with no real control. We don't quite know what happened to them, but the James and Elizabeth, James and um, Janet Davis, the, the the children of Elizabeth, who's in jail, um, are clearly getting worried, mm. and a bit once the, their family are in jail, um, they they seem to be talked to each other and they seem to concoct a story about witchcraft in the family, about black dogs, strange spells going on. And they lead the local constable, they decide to confess and they lead him to the floor, the earth floor of the, the grandmother's house. And there he digs up some teeth. 
which they say were taken from a churchyard some years ago by old Chattox, given to their grandmother, and perhaps used for magic. Right. Now, they knew about them, so you can kind of imagine that these teeth and perhaps a bit of skull from the yeah. graveyard as well. It was quite common to dig up bits of bodies as they, you know, one buried mm. succeeded another. With Think of Hamlet and his skull. There's nothing yes. unusual in picking up bits in a graveyard. Didn't mean they were grave robbing. Um, clearly, these teeth had been on the mantelpiece, as it were, for, for a little while. Yeah. They'd been the object of some fascination. Then they're hastily buried, you guess, yeah. when the witchcraft ac- arrests happen. Then the children get worried about what's going to happen to them. They've yeah. been close to this. You know, they lead the constable and they say, here are the teeth, you know. Uh, we can tell you something. Please don't accuse us. Yeah. Uh, James, and, and who's a, probably a teenager, and Janet, who is said to be nine years old, both tell stories. Janice is clearly parroting some of James's stories, getting the details wrong. But James doesn't tell any stories against Janet, but Janet tells stories against James. James is arrested, and in the end, he himself, this teenager, is attempts suicide in the cells and is finally himself accused by his younger sister of witchcraft and is executed for it. So it's a family tragedy, yeah. and you can see it's you know there are elements of, of, of effectively what we would call child abuse. Mm. Children being leaned on to testify against their family members, threatened, coming up with fantastic stories, mm. and yeah. the, the children themselves, even young Janet, are victims. What happened to Janet? We don't know. Um, Twenty odd years later, there are this second batch of mm. witches arrested in a sort of an aftershock a generation later when elements of the Lancashire trial are, are rehearsed again. Yeah. And amongst the witches that were in that cell over the gatehouse that we were in, one of them is named as a, as, um, a, a, a Janet Davis, a married woman. Oh, okay. And it's an interesting thought that perhaps this young girl, 20 years later, having told her stories, finds herself the victims of stories told by another child against yeah. witches. Maybe the mud stuck. And... Um, we don't know if it's the same person. No. The sticking point is that if she's called Janet Davis and she's a married woman, unless she married somebody of the same name, it's yeah, got to be a different person. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's a story that's intrigued historians down the, the yeah. generations. And because there are so many unknown holes and corners in this, mm. there's so much that we don't know. There's been some you know, very rich and, and you know, imaginative fictions yeah. written about this. I mean, was this, um, was this a, an unusual trial for the period? Were sort of mass trials like this, were they common? When British academics got interested in witchcraft in the 1970s, in the, the, the time of the great boom in social history mm. and history from below, they picked up on the very large number of grassroots accusations of individual witches in ones, occasionally in twos, that happened at county level all over Britain. There was no great witch hunt, there was no inquisition, there were no mass public burnings. Um, no great Puritan witch hunts as there were on the continent of, of Europe or yeah. in Puritan cases, Salem, Massachusetts. What historians found was that there were just a, a gradual background level of local witchcraft accusations that were on the whole explained by community tensions, by begging gone wrong, by yeah. magic gone wrong. Um, part of the ordinary social village history that, that died away as, as, as essentially as educated beliefs about witchcraft changed, so these accusations were still made, but they no longer came to court. But the Lancashire trial is different from those. It's the first, in fact, it's England's biggest 
peacetime witch trial, except in the 1640s when witch trials were largely over and then law and order has collapsed and there's a whole plague of mm. witch finder general investigations in East Anglia. Putting that exceptional late case aside, this is England's biggest peacetime witch trial. To have ten witches hanged, another one die in jail, another one put in the pillory, is far greater than any other English witch trial. So clearly what we're looking at here, for whatever reason, is a witch hunt. And here we are in Lancaster Castle. Lancaster Castle is a symbol of royal authority. The Queen was here last week. In Lancashire, they don't toast Her Majesty the Queen. They toast the Queen, the Duke of Lancaster because that's what she is. This castle is a duchy possession. Mm -hmm. Now, the arms of John of Gaunt, the first Duke of Lancaster, uncle of Richard II, um, are over the castle. Mm. This is a symbol of royal authority. But Lancashire in the early 17th century was viewed as one of the dark corners of the land. It had never been properly evangelised by the new Church of England. Uh, Old-style Roman Catholic beliefs and superstitions persisted it was a place of Jesuits and recusants of illegal underground Roman Catholic culture. And the new strongly prudent authorities of Lancashire were embarrassed by this. They were engaging in hunting down, prosecuting, persecuting Roman Catholic priests illegally in the country and witches as well. And so when in 1612... Young Alison Davis is accused of bewitching a peddler. Roger Knoll, well-known Puritan magistrate, later sheriff of Lancaster, mm. local gentleman, you know. Um, he was involved when James the First and Sixth actually visited Lancaster a few years later. Roger Knoll was there to be presented to the king nearby Horton Tower. Noel, I think, is thinking about his and Lancashire's reputation. Right, OK. He wants to get up to speed with the new science of witch hunting, which, of course, James I himself has written a treatise called Demonology. Like a good Protestant king, he believed he'd been menaced by witches when he was king of Scotland. So what better way to impress yeah. Yeah. James I? Shakespeare wrote Macbeth to welcome him. Parliament passed a new Witchcraft Act in 1604 to please him. Having rejected union with Scotland, it was a, a bit of a sop to James. And then along come the Lancashire authorities and stage a witch trial. Yeah. The book, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. You know, modern translation, witchcraft exposed. <laughs> Tabloid stuff. Yeah. It's published, not in Lancashire, in London. Okay. It is news in London. The clerk of the court from London, the judges are on circuit, publishes this account of the order of the judges. And they're clearly trying to put Lancashire on the map. Mm. We can hunt witches. We are no longer one of the dark corners of the land. We are up with the latest Protestant doctrine about witches. And the really interesting thing about it is it's dedicated to Sir Thomas Knivet, mm-hmm. spelt Knivet. <coughs> who was the man who discovered Guy Fawkes underneath the Houses of Parliament. Mm -hmm. So one gunpowder plot is discovered in London, and the claim in Lancashire is that the witches were planning, held what we might now call a witches' Sabbath, a great meeting of witches it's called, Good Friday, Malkin Tower in Pendle, where they plot to release those witches who've been sent to prison, and to do it by blowing up Lancaster Castle and killing the jailer. Now, you look around at this castle with walls. I was going to say, having seen the thickness of the walls, yeah. then, yes, that'd be some task. No TNT, no dynamite, <laughs> no. just gunpowder, the stuff they put in 
bonfire night rockets yeah, now. A bit of magic. Yeah. <laughs> is it a serious? Were they seriously planning to do this? It's clearly a fiction, but what mm. it is is Lancashire's gunpowder plot. Right. Dedicated to the man who discovered the first and more famous gunpowder plot. Yeah. Clearly, the, the Lancashire authorities are kowtowing to James, and they actually say, "Look, we found witches. The methods that James uses, getting mm. witches to testify against each other." Admitting critically the witnesses, the evidence of child witnesses. Yeah. We've done what the king says. In the king's castle, we've prosecuted witches. Yeah. You know, Lancashire's back on the map. Okay, so Robert, can you just explain where we are um, at the moment in, in the castle? We're in a cell deep below the well tower or witch's tower in mm -hmm. Lancaster Castle. And this is probably the cell where about 15 Lancashire witches were held for several months in the summer of 1612. Um, you can hear by the echo, it's, it's stone, it's bare, it's unchanged for 400 years, right down to these metal rings in the floor. If we were to turn this big torch out, we would get exactly the same view that the 1612 witches had, Gosh, which is nothing, pitch black, yeah. nothing at all. It's very damp in here, isn't it? They, there is a more modern dungeon elsewhere in the castle where visitors are locked in and they shut the light out and after 30 seconds there are kind of nervous nervous <laughs> silence then nervous giggles and somebody says can you let us out now yeah the witches were in here for weeks or months and it's not surprising that they started seeing black dogs devils spirits and confessing to things and how were they do we know how they were treated while they were down here were they you know were they they were kept down here the whole time were they didn't, didn't come leave the cell whatsoever we don't know in detail, but prisoners were normally simply left. They weren't mm. treated or mistreated. They, yeah. were, they were largely ignored. They would have been fed and, and watered. The smell would have been terrible. Yeah. They would have been confined together. And the main thing is they would have been, they were families, family members related. They didn't really understand the charges against them and they had to wait for weeks or months in order to be tried, wondering what on earth had been going on, going over in their own minds, yeah. having dreams and nightmares. So, you know, reality and, and fiction are all mixed up together in witch trials in the minds of the victims as well as in the minds of the persecutors. That was Dr Robert Poole with Charlotte Hodgman. You can read more from Robert and Charlotte in the August edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's issue, there are articles on Hiroshima, the murder of Thomas Beckett, Tudor jousting and many other topics. And as with last month's issue, we're also providing an audio version of the August edition, which is included in the iPad and iPhone editions, and can be downloaded for free from the website historyextra.com forward slash August Audio. And to whet your appetite, here is one of the articles from this month's issue. An enchanting history of charisma is written by Thomas Dixon and spoken by Sally Bailey. An enchanting history of charisma. Elizabeth I used hers to cure the sick, while Garibaldi harnessed his to forge a nation. But what is that magnetic quality we call charisma? And how has it changed over the past 2,000 years? Thomas Dixon investigates. Accompanies a new BBC Radio 4 series, Charisma, Pinning Down the Butterfly. According to some political observers, Boris Johnson, Nicola Sturgeon and Nigel Farage all have the prized ability to connect with voters thanks to that special something known as charisma.
It has also been the possession of a select band of A-list movie stars and US presidents, from J.F. Kennedy to Barack Obama, via Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. It is often cited as an essential quality for leaders and celebrities, a magnetic mixture of personal charm and natural authority. But what exactly is charisma, and where did our modern ideas about it come from? For me, the biggest surprise when I started researching charisma was how recently the term came into wide use in modern English. Although the word was coined by St Paul in his letters to the early Christians in Rome and Corinth 2,000 years ago, it is only since the 1960s that we have been considering whether public figures are imbued with charisma. Even in 1965, the word was unfamiliar to British readers. That year, an article in the Times by the paper's Washington correspondent observed that Lyndon B. Johnson lacked JFK's charisma, adding apologetically that this was a favourite American word. It is almost entirely thanks to the German sociologist and philosopher Max Weber that we use the word charisma as we now do. His fullest discussion of the quality was in his major work Economy and Society, published posthumously in German in 1922. For Weber, charisma was alluring but potentially dangerous as a source of political authority. It was an enigmatic, romantic, heroic quality through which a magnetic leader could break free from the iron cage of rationalism and bureaucracy, which were the hallmarks of the modern industrialised state. However, there is much more to the history of charisma than the relatively recent adoption of Weber's concept by social scientists. Exploring this word over the last two millennia takes us deep into the histories of Christianity, science, medicine and celebrity culture, as well as the world of high politics. And although we may all use the same word, charisma, it has had importantly different meanings. Originally the name for a spiritual gift, it has also referred to the divine healing power of monarchs and most recently to the X Factor, the je ne sais quoi of modern celebrity. Looking back to some of those who have possessed and written about charisma in the past offers a flavour of this fascinating history. St Paul, AD 5-67 It is in the letters of the great leader of early Christianity that we find the earliest writings about charisma. The term, derived from the Greek charis, literally meant a thing of grace and is often translated as spiritual gift. In his letters to the Corinthians, Paul wrote that each member of the church had a particular charisma, whether that might be speaking in tongues, prophesying or performing miracles. This idea that different charismata or gifts were manifested in different members of the church was central to Paul's theology, preserving both diversity and unity. His message was that there were many gifts but one spirit, many members but one body. It is interesting to note that one of Paul's main motivations in writing to the Corinthians about their spiritual gifts was to resist an emerging culture of elitism among those who thought their charismata set them above the rest. Paul was at pains to recognise the value not only of speaking in tongues and wonder-working, but also less spectacular gifts such as teaching, uttering wisdom, giving generously and performing acts of mercy. For St Paul... Everyone has a gift. Each of us has our own charisma. There are two key tensions in Paul's writings about charisma, however, which have remained in evidence through the intervening centuries. 
The first relates to the true source of religious authority. Some have said that this is to be found in tradition and ecclesiastical hierarchy, but others privilege direct access to the Holy Spirit. This comes down to the question of whether it is in the institution or the individual that the special charisma resides, and whether the Holy Spirit, in a post-apostolic age, can be discerned in spectacular forms of charismatic worship involving extreme bodily experiences, signs and wonder, or only in a more staid devotion to the old forms and teachings. The second tension we inherit from St. Paul is between elitist and democratic ideas of charisma. Although Paul's ethos was communitarian, he thought that all gifts should be used for the common good. He was not exactly an egalitarian. He thought that there was a hierarchy of charismata, with prophecy ranking higher than speaking in tongues, for instance. A hierarchy of gifts exists in our own culture too. Certain talents for acting, singing, playing sport, looking good, receive hugely higher rewards than others. And perhaps we, the voters, the fans, the consumers, use the idea that some individuals possess a special, even supernatural charisma in order to justify the influence and wealth we collectively bestow upon them. Elizabeth I, 1533-1603 The Queen with Divine Power at Her Fingertips we generally think of charisma today as a psychological quality, a powerful personality trait. But throughout history, charisma has made itself dramatically visible through the body as much as the mind. Physical demonstrations of special talents are essential to establishing the existence of charisma. From the crowds who tried to touch the hem of Jesus' garment as he walked among them, via the millions of pilgrims who have journeyed to touch the relics of long-dead saints, to those desperate to have a first-hand encounter with an adored celebrity today, there is a long tradition of believing in the physical potency of charismatic individuals. A mere look or a passing touch from the special one can bring happiness and healing. My favourite example of this phenomenon relates to the divine powers of monarchs as demonstrated in the life of Queen Elizabeth I and discussed by Anna Whitelock in her book Elizabeth's Bedfellows, An Intimate History of the Queen's Court. From the medieval period right up to the 18th century, it was widely believed that skin diseases such as scrofula, the king's evil, could be healed by a royal touch. One of Elizabeth's royal chaplains, William Tooker, wrote a book in 1597 in Latin whose title translates as Charisma, or The Healing Gift. In a remarkably vivid passage, Tooker conjures up the contrast between the pure, charismatic queen and her unfortunate, diseased subjects. Tooker wrote that he had seen Elizabeth with her very beautiful hands, radiant as whitewashed snow, courageously free from all squeamishness, touching their abscesses, not with fingertips, but pressing hard and repeatedly with wholesome results. Tooker, Elizabeth and others set great store by these healing acts, not only as evidence of a special divine gift, but also of the validity of her succession. This charisma was simultaneously spiritual and political. Another word in our language, to mesmerise, has its origins in the same connection between mental gifts and bodily healing. It is a relic of the debates about animal magnetism led by the 19th century German physician Franz Mesmer, who pioneered an approach to healing that was a precursor of modern hypnosis. Giuseppe Garibaldi, 1807-82 
a cult hero for the media age. One could not want a better candidate for Max Weber's archetype of the charismatic political leader than the dashing, red-shirted, steely-eyed military hero and Italian nationalist Giuseppe Garibaldi. During his lifetime, Garibaldi came to represent the hopes of the emerging Italian nation. Through his incredible military triumphs, especially in Sicily in 1860, his demeanour, his flamboyant clothing and his legendary piercing gaze, Garibaldi became known as an individual with special gifts. One reason for considering Garibaldi the first modern example of the leader as celebrity is that he lived at the state of a new media age, when the reproduction and manipulation of image through the national and international press had become possible on a new scale. In her study, Garibaldi, Invention of a Hero, Lucy Ryle shows how the great man's fame in his lifetime was followed by the creation, after his death in 1882, of a romantic, quasi-religious cult around his memory. For some, he had seemed a political saviour. To others, he was a personal hero. He inspired generations of political leaders in the 20th century too, including Benito Mussolini, whose paramilitary bands of black shirts were modelled on Garibaldi's red shirts. Indeed, it is hard to look back at the idea of charisma in the late 19th and early 20th centuries without perceiving the shadow of fascism projecting itself over it. Max Weber died in 1920 and was a liberal and democratic thinker. Yet in his yearning for a charismatic leader, we now cannot help seeing a suggestion of the disastrous turn that German politics would take after his death. Weber wrote of the appeal of the irrational, the emotional, the prophetic and the revolutionary, by contrast with the disenchanted utilitarian bureaucracy that he saw all around him. We may all understand this romantic desire, but the examples of Mussolini and Hitler serve as a constant warning against the dangers of emotionalism and demagoguery that come with charismatic politics. Sarah Bernhardt, 1844-1923 The Wacky World of the Original It Girl Although she became known as the Divine Sarah, there was little, either spiritual or political, about the charisma of the most famous actress of the 19th century. If Garibaldi represented a prophecy of the 20th century politics of personality, in Sarah Bernhardt we glimpse a premonition of the cult of celebrity and with it the emergence of a new kind of charisma. The daughter of a high-class prostitute who rose to international fame through her intensely emotional, mesmerising performances, the narrative of Bernhardt's life followed a now-familiar celebrity story. Her romantic liaisons with several of her leading men were reported in the world's press, as were her taste for expensive luxuries and her diva-like fits of rage. She also shared with more recent celebrities the cultivation of eccentric habits, diet and lifestyle as part of the creation of a personal mystique. In Bernhardt's case, this included tales of her sleeping in a coffin, as well as the keeping of unusual pets including monkeys and a cheetah, something echoed most notably by Michael Jackson in more recent decades. Bernhardt reinvented herself repeatedly, performing on the music hall stage as well as making experimental silent movies and audio recordings. By the time of her death in 1923, it was becoming common for filmgoers and journalists to ponder whether or not a particular star exuded that all-important sex magnetism, star quality, it factor or later, 
X Factor. This is the most recent incarnation of modern charisma and the creation of confected reality stars has led to frequent debates about whether such individuals can ever have true charisma. However, it has also encouraged the idea, harking back to St. Paul perhaps, that each individual can have their own special charisma and it is for the rest of the community to discover and celebrate it. The bodily responses of fans to modern celebrities, of which one early archetype was Beatlemania, have often mirrored the behaviour of participants in charismatic religion, including weeping, shouting out and falling down. What moves modern fans, however, is not any gift of the Holy Spirit, but their own yearning somehow to participate in what they take to be the extraordinary abilities of the object of their devotion. The movie mogul Sam Goldwyn once said, God makes the stars, it's up to the producers to find them. But perhaps it's not charisma that leads to fame, but fame that produces charisma. Is it the fact of fame itself that fuels the charismatic cult of celebrity a century after Sarah Bernhardt helped to inaugurate it? About the writer Thomas Dixon's book, Weeping Britannia, Portrait of a Nation in Tears, is published by OUP next month. He is the historical consultant on the BBC Radio 4 series Charisma, Pinning Down the Butterfly. That was An Enchanting History of Charisma, written by Thomas Dixon and voiced by Sally Bailey. You can listen to more articles from this month's issue at historyextra.com forward slash August Audio or via the iPhone and iPad editions. Just before we go, I'd like to remind you about a new app that we've recently launched. It's called History Extra Weekly and is your indispensable guide to the week in history, including some of the best content from the History Extra website. It's free to download and is currently available on the iPad and iPhone. Search for History Extra in the App Store to give it a try. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking to Bethany Hughes about some of history's greatest thinkers. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.